it's March the 15th, half past one in the afternoon, and I'm standing on a residential street in South Tottenham, which is in Harringay, a borough of North London. That's my colleague, Ben Southwood. He's out on the streets of London to look at houses. So the buildings we have here are two-story terraced Victorian and Edwardian homes. I can see many of them have cornices under their eaves um, or bay windows, gables. And he's looking at these houses here because many of them are beginning to change. This residential street is not quite like every residential street in the country because in addition to its normal two-story Victorian terraced homes, there are additional extensions that have been put on many of these houses. They have been built directly upwards, completely in keeping with the existing Victorian facade. In fact, I'm standing directly opposite an extension going on right now. Victorian houses in the UK were built during the reign of Queen Victoria, from 1837 to 1901. People from across the country flocked to London, just as the Industrial Revolution was picking up speed. From 1811 to 1851, the population of Greater London doubled. Half of the country's population called the city home. A lot of new housing was needed, and fast. And today, many of these Victorian houses are still in use. But now, London faces a new housing crisis. Unaffordable rents, overcrowded conditions, and the dream of home ownership drifting further away from the city's young people. And London isn't alone here. A similar story is happening around the world, in cities large and small. However, on that quiet residential street in South Tottenham, the story behind those extensions offers a lesson for those tackling the global housing crisis. Hello, and welcome to Beneath the Surface, a podcast from Stripe Press all about new ideas and big questions in the world of infrastructure. I'm your host, Tamara Winter. In our previous episode, we looked at supply chains, the movement of materials and products from country to country, and a delicate dance that makes up the global economy. Today, we're looking at a component of infrastructure that by its very nature doesn't move, housing. The issues around housing are diverse and wide ranging. Whether the locality in question is a small town or a global metropolis, every place has its own unique challenges. Still, once you dig a little deeper, you start to see some common threads. In this episode, we'll explore why housing prices have risen dramatically in so many places and how individual neighborhoods like South Tottenham and London can address these challenges. For most of human history, people lived in rural areas. But over the last two centuries, cities around the world have seen explosive growth. The UN estimates that 2007 was the first year that most people lived in urban areas. And the urban population is expected to double by 2050. This means that cities are having to adapt in unprecedented ways. 
How do we deliver food and other goods? How do we move through and between cities? And where are all of these new urban dwellers going to live? Because right now, the increase in population is leading to a housing shortage. The supply of homes in most cities has not kept up with the demand. And less supply means prices, naturally, go up. Housing prices are continuing to We've surge across the city. house prices go up steadily by several thousand. Housing prices in Ireland rising by 100 euro a day. Housing costs taking a bigger bite out of your paycheck, and there doesn't seem to be any relief in sight. I would say that affordability in U.S. cities is the, the biggest challenge right now. This is Emily Hamilton. She was at the top of my list of people I wanted to talk to for this episode on housing. I'm a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She says the most relevant housing challenge across the country and really across the world is affordability. Several decades ago, urban policymakers were much more concerned about having too many residents leaving cities and issues like vacancy and crime were much more relevant than affordability. But today, as cities have become job centers once again and are generally the location where the highest paying jobs in the U.S. are located, it's become much more of a question of how to make space for everyone who would like to live in cities and be able to access those job markets at prices that are affordable to them. And in many parts of the world, that holds true as well. Particularly English-speaking parts of the world, like the UK and Canada, are facing very similar affordability challenges to the US. I'll admit that I'm a statistic on this trend as well. Since graduating from college in 2017, I've lived in some of the most expensive cities in the US. Washington, D.C., San Francisco, and now New York. From 1980 to 2020, housing prices in the New York metropolitan area have gone up 700%, more than double wage growth during that same period. In other words, an apartment that sold for $200,000 in 1980 would have sold for $1.4 million in 2020. In San Francisco, house prices went up over 900%. And cities outside the U.S. have seen equally dramatic numbers. Ireland saw prices rise by about 800%, driven primarily by Dublin. Prices in Sydney, Australia, were up almost 1,500%. And in London, the average home price in 1980 was about 25,000 pounds. In 2020, the average price was about 490,000 pounds, a nearly 2,000% increase. Well, the UK, and the UK isn't alone here, has a shortage of housing around its most successful big cities. That's Ben Southwood again. He's currently an editor for the online magazine Works in Progress. But he's been studying housing for a long time. I worked in housing policy for much of the last five years, including at Create Streets, Policy Exchange and the Adam Smith Institute. I'm obsessed with housing. In the morning, I wake up thinking, how are we going to solve the housing problems in the UK today? And I go to bed in the evening also still thinking about how we're going to solve the problems the UK has with housing. And this shortage of housing has led to massive increases in the price of that housing, either to buy or to rent, and also 
big shortages and, and long waiting lists for government-provided housing. Ben is always thinking about unique solutions to the housing crisis. So when he came across a series of interesting building renovations happening in North London, he had to investigate. Most of the time in England, when you do upwards extensions on homes, those extensions look very different to the house underneath and often are very ugly. And often, therefore, neighbours oppose them very vociferously. However, this extension, interestingly, was identical to the building underneath. In fact, it looked as if they had cut off the roof, add an identical story, and then plopped the roof back on top again. So, Ben did what any good researcher would do these days. He took the question to Twitter. A councillor from North London, that is someone who had been elected by the local residents to be on the council. Council is just the standard form of local government in the UK. Replied to our Twitter threads, telling us what happened. The councillor revealed that the people of this community had a particular need for these housing extensions because they were Haredi Jews. Two hundred boys and girls wave a greeting to England, land of the free. The advance guard of the first 5,000 Jewish and non-Aryan child refugees from Germany will be provided with a temporary home here while arrangements are made for them to immigrate. Haredi Jews first established themselves in London in the 1920s. However, it was after the Second World War that the area really started to take off as Jewish refugees fled the Holocaust. Haredi Jews tend to be stricter in their practice of Orthodox Judaism than their peers. They adhere to kosher diets, go to synagogue several times a day, and send their children to religious schools. They also observe Shabbat on Saturdays, meaning they don't drive or use electricity. All of these cultural factors mean that Haredi Jewish people tend to live in tight-knit and compact communities. One area they settled in was Stamford Hill. It's in the borough of Hackney in North London. Today, it is the largest strictly Orthodox Jewish community in all of Europe. Add to that the large size of Haredi families, and the result has been overcrowded housing conditions. So yet another neighborhood in North London sprung up as a hub for the Haredi community, South Tottenham and the borough of Haringey. By one estimate, the number of Haredi families has increased fivefold in the last several decades. And that's where Ben found himself investigating housing extensions. Hi there. I'm standing in South Tottenham, which is a neighbourhood in North London, looking around a suburban street of two-storey Victorian homes. It's quite quiet. I can see a few people walking down every few minutes. I can see lots of people walking around in Orthodox Jewish clothing. And I'm just about to meet my friend Mark, at his house. I talked with Ben after his trip to hear more about what he learned. The local community is Haredi Jewish. Most of them are also Hasidic, um, which means they have particular ways of dressing and particular religious rites and so on. And I met with three leaders in the Haredi community in North London, Mark Grosskopf, Shmuel Davidson and Marty Pinter. My name is Mark Grosskopf and I'm from the Jewish Tottenham community. Mark is a family man with nine children, one of whom has left the house. I'm Shmuel Davidson. I'm from Tom Drew Association. I'm also a deputy on the Board of Deputies and uh, been a community activist here in the area, which I've lived all my life. And uh, I thrive to build this area. Shmuel is a man who's very much in demand. During our interview, 
He had to leave to take phone calls about five times, um, constantly responding to communities' desires and needs. My name is Mati Penta. I work for Khenekhike, which is the representative body for 80 Haradi schools across the country. I also work for Agudis Israel Housing Association. Where Moti is extremely energetic, leader of the Hackney community. We liaison with the council and we do a lot of work with the council, so any issues they'll come in, try and understand the Jewish community and see what their needs are. This community has lots of kids on average. One of the stats said their average number of children was six. In, in Hackney, 8.1% of the population is Haredi. But when you look at the children population, you have 25.9% of the children population in Hackney is Haredi. When you drill that down to you know, two to five-year-olds, you have over 30% of children which are Haredi. Now, so what, what you figure is how many households so, you have. All these average families having six children, the houses just weren't built for them. Most communities, if they get overcrowded, decide to move out to the suburbs where land is cheaper, rather than staying in central London where land is more expensive. However, the Haredi Jewish community were not willing to do this because all of their cultural amenities are in one place. I can't just move randomly to another borough where I don't have a synagogue, I don't have a coast shop, I don't have schools. My daily life is going to synagogue. It's just part of my da daily routine. We pray three times a day. Going to the synagogue is just what we do. We can't just move randomly. Remember that we don't have a synagogue. It's not, we just don't have a life. My whole life, my whole family life will just be completely not there. Take, for example, the weekends, the Shabbat. I don't use public transport. We have to walk. So I need a synagogue within walking distance. I need kosher food. I can't just go to the local grocery store and find food there. There's no kosher food there. I need to be able to go shopping on a daily basis. I need a bakery. I need a kosher bakery. I need a butcher's. I, can't, I need a kosher butcher's. I need a school for my children. My children could go to an Andrew's school, however culturally inappropriate. Yes, they will be educated nationally the proper way as education goes. However, the culturally appropriate education, the religious education, they will not get. And they won't feel comfortable. There. I won't feel comfortable. This is part of my daily life, my part of daily infrastructure. So we need to be living in an area where we have the community infrastructure, the synagogues, the shops, the schools, everything we need as a community and live our lives. So all of these things make it very difficult for the Haredi community to spread out. They need to be near one another. And they have a very vibrant cultural life as well, which is another reason why they would like to be with one another as well. All of these things meant they weren't willing to move out. So instead of moving out, the Haredi Jewish community decided, well, should we buy more of the houses in the neighbourhood and spread out in each direction? Well, firstly, it's very expensive. It might cost them £500,000 to buy the next door neighbour's house. Secondly, that takes houses off the market and that means other people can't live there. And finally, there just aren't enough houses to go around. The housing challenges the Haredi community face are just one example. Any neighborhood can grow beyond its limits because of high birth rates, increased immigration, or simply because it's a newly desirable place to live. But the Haredi community kind of represents this perfect storm of a housing crisis. They have, on average, eight people in their families. They need to be within walking distance of certain shops and community services, making it really hard to relocate. And the area where they live is way too expensive to buy any neighboring homes. If they can work their way through a housing crisis, shouldn't it be doable anywhere? Stuck in the situation where they needed more space, some Peretti families decided to just start modifying their homes. But 
Because of housing regulations in the UK, that's easier said than done. Ben explains. So in the UK, we have something called planning, which is what Americans call zoning. But the difference between planning and zoning is that zoning is usually rules-based. So there are a bunch of rules that say what you can build and where, um, and then, then developers have to follow those rules. Planning in the UK is discretion-based. So every individual house, if you want to extend that house by adding a story or putting a different window on it or something like that, you have to apply to the local government and say, please, can I do this? There are almost no developments that you can do without um, a specific permit with the council, which is the local government, going through the details of that permit. Councils look through every application bit by bit. And so it makes it very uncertain, very costly to pursue development because it's uncertain whether you're going to get permission or not. But some Peretti families just started building anyway. Some of them were building up in the maximum way they were allowed under the current rules, or even pushing the rules to the limit. Building ugly box dormers is what they call them, boxes. Um, And neighbours were objecting to these because they were unsightly and they were ruining the original heritage of the Victorian buildings. But they needed the space. So there was this conundrum where they wanted space, but the existing ways of delivering space were insufficient and ugly. Here's Shmuel Davidson. There was no basic guidelines on what the rights, what the wrongs were. People were trying all sorts of things and it was just causing all sorts of problems for planning, enforcement, and it was just getting nowhere. And it was just, it got to the point where the community and the local authority really became, you know, heads up together and the, the whole thing. So they petitioned the council and said, look, can we build upwards? Mark Grasskopf. Again, And Sean and I was going backwards and forwards, you know, saying, look, you know, let's come up with a solution. And it was actually after sitting, going backwards and forwards, they turned around and said, look, do you know what? These actual lofts are ugly. Let's come up with a new plan. And, you know, we wanted space. They wanted looks. Working with the council, the community came up with the idea of extending the buildings upwards in a way that was consistent with their existing style so that the street looked like it had just been originally built as a Victorian three-storey street. Basically, you take off the roof, you add in an extra storey that looks just like the one underneath, and then you put the roof back on. So it just looks like the original building, but stretched upwards. It can get four, five, in some cases, six bedrooms added on top. And over the years, the community began to make some progress working with the local council. Here's Madi Pinter. They would put forward you know, the most recent update. People would be able to argue over it or say their opinions. They would put things down on the table and say, these are ideas that the architects have raised. And then people around the room would be able to say, yeah, but this won't work here, or it will work here. The council in Herengay was surprisingly open to the Heredi community's ideas. There was still some opposition. You know, we had different views from different people. Some of those have been extremely challenging. For some people, they they see this as something new and they're concerned how it's going to look and how it's going to end up. Early in this area, we had actually people residents who worked solidly against it. However, once we came up with the design, with the concept, with the idea, working endlessly with the local authority, with both the politicians and the officers, together with the community, and with the product we were going to deliver, I think all around, you know, the opponents, very nice, but it's all the benefits. just outweighed the opponents a million times. It still took years and years of work from the community to get the design code put through and make it so that if they made a planning application to the council, the council was very likely to say yes, as long as it stayed within the rules they had set out in advance. 
I think once this is actually introduced and it's introduced more widely, I think a lot of those fears won't be there anymore. I think it's just, you know, people being concerned about what is going to happen. But when it actually happens, they're going to see a lot of benefits. When I grew up here, uh, the concept of building an extension those days was virtually non-existent. You know, and I see families today who have built, like, what we're standing in front of now, which... There's one going on right now as we speak. Right, I was asking, yeah, it's going up right now, which has just made a a complete life changer. A life change to the area, a life change to the families. The design, it just fits into a beautifully Victorian style of the houses. It doesn't look odd, it doesn't Mm -hmm. stand out. The the quality it gives to the families, to the people. And if you just go around the area, just see the development which has gone on here, which has been achieved by this magnificent idea, which I think we, we're unique for the country, I think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's absolutely amazing. I just hope others just copy us and, and, and do that because, you know, as there's a housing crisis generally across everywhere, we know there's just, just no housing. Our achievement was the product which we have, which we see today. And this, this is a phenomenal product. And it's a product of community cohesion, a product of working with local politicians, a product working with the local officers, a product working with local residents, consultations, perseverance, non-stop, and knowing what your end goal is going to be and really go for it. Never drop out, never give up, because eventually, if that's what you want to get achieve and want to get there, you'll get there. What Mark, Shmuel, Mahdi, and the rest of the Haredi community were able to make happen in South Tottenham is ultimately a success story. And the numbers would suggest that this success should be replicable. Haredi families have on average around six children, The birth rate in England and Wales in 2020 was 1.58 children per woman, a much smaller number. So if the Haredi community can create abundant housing with such a high population growth rate, certainly it could be done across the larger UK population. But remember that it didn't just magically happen. It took perseverance and patience and working within the system to make progress. But Why can't the system be more accommodating to encourage more housing in the first place? Why does it take so much effort to build housing, something that London desperately needs? What we see if we look at traditional zoning in places like England is that they were never designed to streamline that sort of process. They were never designed to solve those political challenges. I mean, zoning was essentially designed to stop change in many places. This is John Myers. He's working at the forefront of pushing for housing reform in the UK. We shouldn't be surprised that we're not getting plentiful housing in areas with zoning because it was never designed to allow the sort of densification that we used to see historically over centuries in cities and which led to you know, the much-loved urbanism that you see in historic towns and cities in Europe today. His work goes back to 2014. John read an article that made him realize just how upside down the housing market truly was. It explained that the total market price of housing in the UK was three times more than what it would cost to rebuild all of that housing at today's prices from scratch. And so that to me was the biggest distortion I've ever seen in any market or industry anywhere. It's just an eye-watering shortage and it it tells you that there's something really wrong there you know it, it means that the reason why housing is so expensive in london 
is not because there's some shortage of land or because we have a brick shortage. It's because you're simply not allowed to build more, even when it would be enormously economically beneficial to do so. And that was just the most broken thing I've ever seen. John's organization is called YIMBY Alliance, which stands for Yes in My Backyard. It's a counter to NIMBY, or Not in My Backyard. The NIMBY acronym was born from neighborhoods that didn't want the downsides of new housing near them. Understandably, there are plenty of reasons to not want certain projects in your neighborhood. After all, who wants to live next to a coal power plant or a garbage dump? But when it comes to building housing, the effects are generally felt very locally. Things like construction noise and additional traffic. And so the idea behind John's Yimby movement is that the collective economic and social benefits of allowing new developments will outweigh any short-term side effects. And John's proposal is to leave the decision to build denser housing to the people who live on the street where the housing will actually be built. It's a proposal he calls street votes. If somebody turns a single-family home on your street into, say, townhouses or into low-rise apartment blocks, that mainly only affects the other people on your street, especially if effects on parking and other traffic congestion are controlled carefully. So there's no real reason why, if the broad majority, the overwhelming majority of people on your street are happy for those sorts of developments to happen, to gracefully allow single-family homes to be turned into townhouses or even something a bit more ambitious. There's no reason why they shouldn't be able to choose to allow that, so long as the neighbours on other streets are protected. Street votes certainly sounds like a winning scenario for neighbourhoods, with each individual voter deciding for themselves if they'd like to capture the benefits of new developments. But of course, it's not always easy for entire neighbourhoods to come together. In South Tottenham, for example, the neighbors were opposed to changing the aesthetic of the old homes there. They ultimately found a solution, but surely looks can't be the only thing holding back new housing. Thank you. I, I think we're good, yeah? Yep. Um, my phone has just gone. Yeah, no, it's still, it's still working away there. Um, hello. Yes, I'm so excited about this. I got in touch with Ronan Lyons. My name is Ronan Lyons. I'm an associate professor in economics at Trinity College Dublin. Ronan is a bit of a housing guru in Ireland. People in Ireland might also know me because I, I work on something called the Daft Reports. It's like the Zillow or the Right Move in Ireland. Uh, it's like a, a major property portal, and uh, once a quarter or twice a quarter, once for rental and one for sales, I do uh, housing market analysis. So. Uh, with the never dull Irish housing market, there's always something to talk about. In Ireland, we see the same story playing out as in so many other countries. In short, we have a situation in Ireland where we have not enough homes getting built for the number of new households that would or should form. I do think Ireland is a good microcosm of a lot of the issues that have arisen in many, especially high-income countries, over the last 30, 40 years. It turns out the history of these rules is a part of the reason it's so hard to change housing policy. What had happened between the 40s and the 70s in the United States is there had been significant attempts to boost the homeownership rate. What it, what it meant was that the, the typical district that's voting people uh, in, in the US or indeed in, in a European country now has a majority of homeowners and, and their interests may differ from, from other, other households. And that was a kind of a key turning point because once... People were aware of that. 
they were able to co-opt all sorts of reasoning, um, some of it environmental or um, uh, quality controls or whatever, um, and and use those as fronts for what is effectively um, preserving the value of the biggest thing on their, their balance sheet. And so when politicians are trying to appeal to voters, anything that will affect the value of their homes can get politically dicey. Planners are responding to the demand for planning. And when they put in land use restrictions, they're doing so because they get re-elected to do so. People who come along, they won't phrase it like this, but they say, I will preserve the value of your home by limiting the construction of new homes. That is a vote winner, right? Whatever way you've got to indicate that you'll do that without saying, I'm going to price out new households, that's a vote winner. If you look at uh, Ireland, if you look at lots of European countries, if you look at the US, um, we have ended up with a system where the incumbents, the people who are there already and secure in their housing, have disproportionate power over new housing supply. Despite this individual opposition, the benefits of growth and new housing are widespread throughout society. There's better investment in infrastructure, attracting new businesses, creating more jobs, and of course, keeping house prices affordable. And with John Meyer's Street Votes plan, he believes that there will be enough people who see through the short term to the larger upside. And he's hopeful because he's seen this localized effort work outside the UK. First, in Israel. The most recent example that comes to mind is in Tel Aviv, where the government proposed a means for residents to be allowed to decide if they wanted to, to redevelop their own apartment block and either extend it or to replace it with an entirely new block with more apartments in it. And that accounted for about 35% of the new homes in Tel Aviv in 2020. It was an astonishing increase. Second, in South Korea in the 1990s. The government allowed areas of single-storey homes to vote collectively if they wanted to give themselves permission to redevelop that whole area. And again, that accounted for the majority, I think, of the new condos built in Seoul for a portion of the 1990s. Lastly, a city in my home state, Houston, Texas. Houston, as you know, doesn't have zoning in the traditional sense of the term, but it does have what are called minimum lot size requirements. And that says that if you want to build a new home, you have to have a piece of land which is at least a certain size. Those sizes were quite big, and the city of Houston wanted to reduce that size to allow more homes to be built in Houston to keep Houston affordable for renters. There was a fair amount of political resistance from people living in areas of single-family homes with large lot areas. And so in order to overcome that pushback, they decided to allow effectively an opt-out from the change that they were proposing. And that let them get that change through. And you see the results in Houston where there's a lot of new housing being constructed as a result of that. There are a lot of um, homeowners who are probably better off because their plot can now be used for more housing than it was before. And yet the people who are most resistant to change have been able to opt out. And so this principle of giving flexibility on a very small level can make it much more politically palatable to engineer change and to get more housing. If you offer families a way to literally change their lives, a way to guarantee housing for their children or their grandchildren, um, a way to make it much easier to live, 
And all they have to do is vote for graceful change, which is completely consistent with what we've seen in cities over centuries. I have to believe that a small amount of people will do that. And that's very consistent with what we've seen in Tel Aviv. It's consistent with what happened in Seoul. And it's also consistent with the fact that most of Houston didn't opt out of these changes. And as John points out, the needle doesn't have to move that much to see real change. We don't actually need to upzone the entire of London or the entire of um, the Bay Area in order to get vastly amounts more housing. So in London, if you just took three, four, five percent of the lowest density areas, you would engineer a step change. You would more than double the supply of housing in London. With all of these examples, John feels optimistic that street votes can gain some real political momentum in the UK. We've seen quite a fair amount of traction in England with that. We've been lucky enough to find an incredible coalition that has supported these sorts of ideas because it's ultimately not very controversial. There aren't really that many people who disagree with the proposition that if people on the street want to see more development, they should be allowed to permit it. I have a tendency to talk too much. So <laughs> if you, you don't stop me, then I think Finally, back in South Tottenham, Ben wrapped up his interview with Mark, Shmuel, and Mahdi. By one estimate, the Haredi community has added a thousand extra bedrooms using their method of building extensions. Okay, so let's have a little look around. Yeah, so, so Mark, show yeah, I'll, I'll quickly run through basically. So what, what, what? And Mark himself had recently constructed a loft conversion onto his own Victorian house. It, it was built about six months ago. So I was living in a bedroom, seven, seven kids living on one bedroom, three bunk beds and a mattress on the floor. Wow. That's how the family was living. Now, at the moment, so before Ben left, Mark gave him a tour of the house. You come into the hallway, you've got a dining room. So it's quite, it's quite a big dining room, which we've extended slightly. And then... Mark has a very large dining room, presumably to fit his nine children, wife and self, in having dinner at the same time. Let's go upstairs. And we go upstairs, and Mark shows me what the house originally looked like. Uh, there was um, two bedrooms uh, and two bathrooms. Yep. In one of the bedrooms was the master bedroom. In the other bedroom was seven of his children. This is where we had um, three bunk beds and a mattress on the floor. We got two bunk beds. Now, there's only two children in that original seven children bedroom. And the other children are all spread across different bedrooms. And we go up another floor. He's added four bedrooms on the top floor. And then you've got a front room over here. As you can see how big it is. Wow, imagine, so you were going from that room where there were six of them in there, yeah. and then now they've got a, a huge two-bedroom. That's correct. And he says that this has made a huge difference to his children's experience of school, to you know the togetherness, everyone's getting along better. It really is striking how one and a half extra stories can make such a large difference to how much space there is to go round. When there's seven children crammed into one bedroom, it must be much harder to have lots of the things that you want as a child. And then we go up to the next floor. And what I've done is in, in this area over here where the front of the house goes, um, we call it the apex, we've left it over there and it's a sensory room. We, we use it as a sensory room. Ah. 
So they've got you've got the toys down over there. Yeah. And then the kids go inside over there and relax and enjoy themselves over uh -huh. there. Mark's family looks after kids with special needs from the community. You know, every weekend we get we take bring kids in from uh -huh. the other families to give the parents a rest. In the low ceilinged part, he put in a sensory room with interesting lights and sounds and so on for kids to go in and apparently they really like it. Oh, well, my, well, my mother would love to meet you then because uh, <laughs> she does a lot. She does a lot of work. It's amazing how much they've managed to add. How many you know they've got extra bedrooms. They make all the space. They've got extra bathrooms. And this is all just on the existing Victorian plot. Beneath the Surface is a production of Stripe Press. The senior producers for the series are myself and Everett Katigback. This episode was produced by Dave Yim. Whitney Chen is our production manager extraordinaire. Our sound mixer and sound designer is Jim McKee. Original music for this episode was composed by Auribus. To learn more about Stripe Press, visit press.stripe.com. That's it for this episode of Beneath the Surface. I've been your host, Tamara Winter. We'll see you next time.